to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. All right, good morning, church. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 together. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Morning, Transit Church. You guys doing all right? Yeah. All right, I know you're already there. 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, we made it. Like We've been in this book for, for those of you who have been here that long, we've been here in this book for almost six months. It took us six months to go 15 chapters. And uh, in these last two weeks, well, last week's in November, but over the next two weeks, we will finish the book out this week, obviously in uh, the first half of, of chapter 16. And here's the thing. If you have, if you were here last week, if you've even read a little bit of chapter 15, then those verses that Kevin just read are kind of like a, a, a letdown. Like, what happened? I mean, chapter 15 is the most important treatise that Paul writes on the resurrection of Jesus. And he says these beautiful words that death is swallowed up in victory. And then he, it's sort of the exclamation point on that is, is Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Turn the page. Chapter 16, he says, all right, let's be sure to take up a collection. And oh, by the way, uh, I've hired my Uber. I'm on the way. Timothy's in route as well. I love you. Bye-bye now. It's kind of like uh, letting air out of a balloon. Or, or worse, watching paint dry. But that's how life is, isn't it? Sometimes there's, there's moments that we're soaring high and up in the air and things are almost like mountaintop experiences and and then we come back down to the common level of life perhaps even the valley can i say it like this that we we return to the mundane day ins and day outs of our lives and so i think that uh, just as our lives are sometimes highs and lows Paul is, uh, is helping us experience that through the text. So perhaps it's appropriate that Paul will end his letter in this kind of a normal, ordinary, even mundane kind of a way. And as Paul nears the end of his letter, he's really echoing the, the same theme that he's um, 
portrayed throughout the whole letter that he's weaved throughout, which is how this Corinthian church should be living the Christian life in the real world. And that's what we've sort of talked about every week, is how do we as Christians, uh, with the influence of the culture that we live in here in D.C. Metro, how do we live that life in a faithful way as followers of Jesus, given the influences that the culture has on us? And as we look at these first 11 verses in chapter 16, Paul's going to make three points. He's going to teach us about money. He's going to talk to us about mission. And then he's going to exhort us on what it actually looks like to be true servants of God. Before I get to that, let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. What a beautiful day you've given us. Fall is here. Crispness is in the air. And with all of the, um, with all of those changes and transformations in the season, uh, it's already beginning to feel like Christmas. And so we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you're such a creative God and you show your beauty through what you have made. You also show your beauty through your church, and it is as your church that we are gathered here today. And so, God, we, we do this not because we have to, although you exhort us to, we do it because we get to. And so, Lord, uh, when we are here, you're here. So, Holy Spirit, we speak to you and honor you, we acknowledge you, we glorify you. You're the one that, that illumines Jesus to our heart and inclines us. You draw us to him. And so even as we, uh, as we approach these verses that kind of, I mean, what's the point? Sometimes we might say that. Would you show us Jesus? Would you help us to see him even in these, these texts that don't mention his name? And, and, and God, would you draw our hearts to what you would have us to hear and to see and to, to live in his name? And we pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so here's the thing. Pastors don't like talking about money. It's just, it's just something that, you know, it's, sometimes we lack courage. Sometimes we think y'all are going to like us if we don't, you, you aren't going to like us if we talk about money. And as church people, y'all don't want to hear us talking about money, right? Because you, your money's your money. You want to do what you want to do with it. Guess what, Transit Church? This is one of those days. I'm going to talk about money, and you're going to have to sit there and hear me talking about money at least for the next 15 minutes. So the first thing that Paul uh, talks to us about or teaches us about is money and the church. Verse 1 through 4 is what Paul says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there may be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you, whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So right off the bat, hopefully you notice something that we've seen very often here in this letter. It's, it's, it's the words, now concerning, which is code word in, in this, uh, this letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth, that he's responding to a question that has reached him from this church, they, they are asking him to clarify some things. And in verse 2 and 3, the things that they're asking him to clarify is regarding a collection, a monetary gift that he wanted them to make that was going to go from them to the church at Jerusalem. And we learn the backdrop of all that in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11 for the, uh, uh, to be specific. Verse 28, we learn that Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and they're ministering. They're ministering to Greeks. The text calls them Hellenists. 
and people are coming to faith. And Paul, they're sharing the gospel. They're telling people about Jesus. People who have been far away from God, who've been uh, in the secular world, pagans worshiping idols, are hearing about Jesus for the first time, and they're coming to faith, and they're giving their lives to Jesus. There's this, uh, it's like a spectacle, the thing that's going on in Antioch. And that's why, one of the reasons why the Bible says they were first called Christians in Antioch. This is this, this unexplainable thing is happening as Paul is articulating the gospel of Jesus and people are coming to him. And so, uh, so much, uh, so much is it a spectacle that just leaders of the church are coming to Antioch as well. And one particular day, prophets come and Acts 11 tells us a prophet named Agabus prophesies that there's going to be a famine that's going to overtake that whole region. So uh, here's what happens. Believers in Antioch decide that they're going to take up a collection of money and send it to Judea, which is Jerusalem, it's a part of that province, and they're going to send it through the hands of Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, in this letter and other letters, sort of makes that his pattern as he's starting churches and mentoring churches after he's sort of raised them up and, and put other, other leaders over them. He decides that he's going to continue this custom of churches supporting other churches. He tells us in verse 1 that he gave instructions to the church at Galatia that they are to take up a collection and then have someone deliver that money in support and relief to the church at Jerusalem. We learn in 2 Corinthians 8 that the churches in Macedonia also participated. Paul mentions the same effort of, uh, of sending relief with the church at Philippi. Philippi uh, in Philippians chapter 4, we learn that the Philippians not only sent relief to the saints in Judea, but they were also instrumental in helping Paul sustain his, um, his habitual church planting mission as he went around the, the, the Roman province as an apostle of, of God's gospel. But here's the thing that, that sticks out, at least to me, in these first four verses. And it's, it's the pattern that we see in these New Testament churches in regards to their giving. This is an interesting thing. Because this is only 20 or 30 years post-resurrection, so these churches are relatively new. And what we see here is these individual, individual churches, that they're sharing and bearing one another's burdens. And, and God amongst them has instigated that. We also see these churches partnering together. And here's, here's what's interesting. There are, there's no such thing as a denomination in the first century. There's no such thing as a network of churches in the, in the first century. And so uh, it's really God, by his spirit, through his words, that are bringing these churches together to love and share and be, in a, be on a common mission with each other, such that they would do this kind of thing. They're actually sharing a common mission as they were participating in this common relief for other churches. Particularly, uh, it's the strong churches helping the weak. There's a pattern here. Mutually supporting each other that became normative for all the New Testament churches. And here's the pattern. Firstly, Paul says that their giving was consistent. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first day of the week for the New Testament church, like us today, is Sunday. It's the Lord's Day, John's Gospel. John says in Revelations 1, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. It's Sunday. Ever since Jesus rose 
from the grave on that first Easter. Sunday has been considered the first day of the week and the day that the early church gathered for Christian assembly and for worship. And so Paul is saying Sunday, the first day of the week, is also to be the day that Christians give to support the saints, the work of the ministry, the relief of the poor, and the cause of the gospel to the, to the, the world. That's, the, that's what Paul is instituting right here. Actually, he's not instituting it. He's, he's, in, he's saying, hey, let's, let's, this is already happening. Let's get in on this. He says, let's make this a normal practice. He's saying, when the offering plate comes around, in our case, we don't, we don't have an offering plate, right? I've thought of having an offering plate, but we don't have one right now. What do we got? It's a giving box in the back. So at the end of the service, when Jeff or Nick or whoever's up here says, all right, so we're going to respond in three ways, and one of those ways is to... Um, is to give of, give of the resources that the Lord has blessed you. We're talking about money, right? He, he's saying, don't act as if you've never heard that before, especially if you've been to church before. Let, let this be a normal pattern. Don't sort of look in dismay, thinking, well, what, what are they doing now? I never heard, where's my checkbook? Like start to scrape the bottom of your pocketbook for the, 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 the loose change you got. He said, come on now, get with it. Don't do that. Don't act like you've never heard this stuff before. Rather be consistent with this. This is a regular pattern, a Sunday pattern for the church that we're supposed to give in this way. Here's another thing to notice. In verse 2, Paul says, store it up. Store it up so there will be no collecting when I come. This phrase, store it up, is a one Greek word that represents this whole phrase here. And it's connected to the word that means treasury. And so this wouldn't have been a foreign term to these Corinthians. It was a treasury uh, like this in the pagan temples, most of the, the the church members in Corinth were Greeks. They were they come out of pagan, secular, idol worship kind of environments, and they would have gone to temples and they would have contributed their own money and resources to a treasury. There was also a treasury in the temple, the Christian temple, uh, the Jewish temple rather in Jerusalem. So Paul is saying, "Hey, you you know what this is? I want you to contribute to the treasury of your local church." In other words. Give to your local church. Likewise, the local church was to make plans to store it up. So the church was supposed to have some way that they took the collection of money from the saints, from the various households that were involved in the church, and they were supposed to administer it in whatever particular ways that local congregation thought was necessary for them to support the advancement of the gospel. But they were to do that regularly, consistently, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as the church um, administered what God had given in terms of resources. So they were to give consistently. Here's the second thing that we see in this text. They were to give proportionally. Verse 2 again, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Here's the emphasis, as he may prosper. As he may prosper. When you come to our membership class, we tell you that we actually believe in tithing. To tithe means a tenth. It means to give a 10% of your income and support of the local church. Admittedly, tithing is an Old Testament concept. But here's the thing, if you've read your Old Testament, then you've come across this, even if you might not have put it together quite like this. There actually were three tithes in the Old Testament for the church, for the nation of Israel. 
There was a tithe that went to the Levites. Why would the Levites get a tithe? Because God did not give them amongst the, the tribes of Israel. He didn't give them an inheritance. And so the, the contribution from all the tribes, their tithe went to, the, went to the Levites so that they could sustain themselves. There was a tithe that also went to the temple for its upkeep. Uh, think, all right, all of the resources that requires for us to support our church and for us to even be sitting here with conditioned air and lights and screens and all that stuff. And so they gave to the temple for its, for its uh, continuing use up for them. And there, there was a tithe to the poor. And it wasn't necessarily they, they were collecting money to, like, uh, as an income for the poor. It was to, to help the poor and those that were the least, the last, and the lost amongst them. And so if you add that up, it works out that an Old Testament saint was actually given about 23% of, of all of their resources and income. Oh, by the way, I haven't even talked to the elders about this, but I'm absolutely positive that they would love it if you would give 23% of your income to transit church. Just think what we could do if all of you were giving 23% of your income. But here's why we support tithing. Our church supports tithing as a good rule of thumb for, for our church, for most Christians. Firstly, you know, the, although this is an Old Testament concept, the truth is Jesus says, I come not to uh, do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Okay? So one of the ways that Jesus fulfills any, any Old Testament law is actually he actually up, ups the ante of it. The New Testament usually has more, more stringent requirements than even the Old Testament laws. And so in this case, the New Testament pattern is way more radical than the 23% of, of the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament principle is not just radical, it's sacrificial. So the giving that we are supposed to give is, as New Testament Christians, and, if, and honestly, there's no such thing as a New Testament Christian, right? The Old Testament people, they actually were saved by faith through grace the same way that you are today. It's just a different um, administration of, of the grace of God. We're just on the other side of the cross. But as people on the right side of the cross, we're to give sacrificially, sacrificial generosity. Here's what Paul says in another verse, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and 9. He says, our giving should be based off the example of how Jesus gave to us. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also be genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what is Paul commending to us? He says, if you want to know how to give, look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Man, he gave it all down to his body and his blood in your place for your sin on a cross. We give not only from our own resources, we give our very selves with nothing held back. That's the example of Jesus. You know, there really are two ways that we can all look at our money and our resources and our things. We can have the perspective that all this stuff is mine. I work for it. I did whatever I had to do to get it, and, and so it really does belong to me. Or you can have the perspective that the Bible espouses, is that you are a steward. 
that God created you, that God gave you the intellect and the wherewithal to amass and gain the resources that you have um, to live life and sustain yourself. But in the end, it really belongs to him. And so as a steward, we are honoring God by using his money wisely in the ways that he would prescribe for us. That's, that's the biblical idea, that all of it is his who gave his all for us. And as he says in 2 Corinthians 8, if we're giving from a love towards Christ that's genuine, we'll give radically, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the cost associated with it, because there's a cost to give. When you give, that means that's something that you really can't get. I mean, I'm going to give my money, so that means I don't get to use that money. It means that we'll be sacrificial in it, and mostly we're going to be generous. We won't be asking, well, I mean, what is the minimum amount I, that, that I can legitimately get, give and, and still be like on, on the good side of the Lord and the church and all that? Instead of thinking that way, we'll be thinking, you know what, I'm going to give in such a way that it reflects my devotion to, to Jesus, my Savior who gave his all for me. So let me ask this question, Transit Church. What does it mean for you to give proportionally? Verse 2, Paul says, give as each may prosper. So let me let some of that air out of the room, right? All right, don't, don't be so tense. Loosen up. We're almost done talking about money. I don't think Paul is talking about a percentage, right? So we, we encourage you, tithe, give 10%, because that's, that, that really is a minimum amount. I think Paul is encouraging us to take a good look, an honest look at the way that God has prospered you. Give as each may prosper. Reflect on how God has blessed you from the simple to the extravagant. Think about how many times have you gone out to eat? How many movies have you gone to see in the last month? How many streaming, what do you call those things? Streaming systems do you have? Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Oh, by the way, the new Disney Plus is like, who's not loving that, right? What about the, the clothes you wear, the shoes on your feet, the food on your table? Think of all the luxuries that you might enjoy as a person and as a family. Think of the abundance the Lord has lavished on you, his kindness and his prosperity that you enjoy every day of your breathing life. And then ask yourself whether your own pleasures have a higher claim on your own money than the cause of Jesus. That's a good question. Do your own pleasures have a higher claim on your resources than the cause of your Savior who you profess to love, follow, and serve? Here's the, here's the kicker right here, though. With someone looking at your bank account to conclude that Jesus holds first place, any place, in the priorities of your life and in your heart. Say love. He wants us to be deliberate. He wants us to be consistent. Their giving was proportional. Here's the last thing, deliberate. Verse 2 again, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper. And here's the emphasis, so that there will be no collecting when I come you know, the most interesting part about this text to me, at least these first uh, four verses, is that Paul is asking this Greek church to provide monetary relief to a predominantly Jewish congregation like, like states over, like all the way over in Jerusalem. That just baffles me. 
In the first century, Corinth was one of the most influential Greek cities in the ancient world. And by virtue of its location, the Corinthians would have been made up of a whole lot of Gentiles, like very few Jews in the congregation. And if you know anything about the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles weren't exactly friends. You know, they, they weren't friends in Jesus' day. It's only 20 or 30 years later. And so the culture hasn't changed that much. And so Paul is asking them to do something that's going to be not just sacrificial. It's going to be downright hard for them. They're not going to want to do it. And so here's why Paul makes this an issue for the Corinthian church. And, and obviously, by extension, us. It's because sometimes we don't like people. Ain't that the truth? But here's the kicker right here. It's sometimes we just don't like to share. Sharing isn't natural because most of us are me-centric. So this is Jenny's that opened in Alexandria. Oh, my God. Nick tweeted, Nick, um, you all blessed us last month. Pastor's appreciation with Jenny's ice cream gift cards. Knowing, I don't even know if y'all knew this, like Jenny's just opened up in Alexandria. I've been ticking down the day when they were going to open up, right? And I didn't know they had opened, and Nick sent me a picture, and all of a sudden, just like my mouth is salivating, and I'm like, Jenny's ice cream, it's my savior today, right? So when I'm eating ice cream, even if I love you, I won't share. Right? I, w- I would rather spend extra money to get you your own scoop of ice cream than share my ice cream. That's how we are. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a little bit overboard with that, particularly with ice cream. But that's kind of how we are with sharing, right? Think of the two-year-old little girl that doesn't want to share her toys. A, a lot of your kids are that age. One of the first words that our little kids uh, learn is no. And a close word after that is mine. Mine. It's instinctive. Can I say this? It's sinful. And it's cute when they're little. But here's the thing. They grow up. We grow up with these same mentalities about everything. And in turn, especially with our money, um, we, we grow internal. And so Paul is saying, Share your goods, share your money, share your things. He's, he's giving us a forcing function because he knows that even in our transforming hearts, that God is he's changing us. This is one of those things that we hold on to because it's ingrained in us at such a little age, especially in a climate of inequality. You know, that's a cuss word in our day-to-day, inequality. Inequality is not a friendly word in conservative circles. We're church people, so we're kind of conservative, Right? It's a reminder that there are some that have and there are some that don't have. And that makes us uneasy because we don't know what to do with that. Because in those instances that we want to help, we do. But there's a lot of times that we don't want to help and we feel conflicted about it. And so it's easy for us, even in a church, to judge. But for those of us that have not, it's not always the case that they're lazy or just not trying. Think of what you think about when you see a homeless person on a corner, right, like, there, there are several in Kingstown that I drive at all the time, and I can't help but my thoughts like, what put that person on that corner? What circumstance? And, and my thoughts aren't always pure about that person. One commentator that I read this week says this. He says, it may surprise you to know that more often than not, 
The Bible defines inequality not in terms of misfortune, as most people would, but rather in terms of injustice. Here's why. Because when there's inequality, there are only two possible scenarios. Either there's not enough to go around, or simply it's not going around. Here's what this writer is saying. Frankly put, today we live in a society where there's plenty of wealth to go around. It's just not going around. Here's my point in bringing this up. The, the modern church is oftentimes not countercult- the, the countercultural community that it's supposed to be. One other author I read today uh, this week said, it's not that Christians don't care about things like equality and helping those that are less fortunate, but we often just want it to happen magically. It, it, it's just like saying that grace covers a multitude of sin, but us not wanting to have anything with that, administering that grace. It's like waving our hands, giving a handout, and saying to someone that's unfortunate, go go fix yourself, and I'm going to go on my way. And so, again, this is a forcing function, this idea of giving, giving consistently, giving proportionately, giving deliberately. We need to be deliberate because it's good for us. Giving should not be an afterthought for a Christian. Christians shouldn't rummage through what's left over and scrap together, together, uh, something that's in the bottom of their pocketbook or in their wallet or in the, key, in the, uh, the, the, the console of the car. Because if we do this, I guarantee you won't have anything left to share because money and things, this is for all of us, they turn us inward when we're not deliberate. And so I'm going to get off the, the, the topic of money and turn the corner, but, but let's first apply this because we'll lose it. We'll, we'll We'll think other thoughts and we'll lose this. So let, let, me, let me apply this by asking you this question. What does it look like in, in our day? What should giving, you sharing the resources that you have, think money and resources that are legitimately yours to do whatever you want to do with, what does it look like for you to offer those consistently, proportionately, deliberately, sharing your money and your things in a Godward way with your church. Two things. Firstly, this is something that should be a part of our discipleship. So if you're sitting here in this room, and in however many years or days or months you've been a Christian, this is the first time you're hearing someone talk about a Christian should give, then those people surrounding you, definitely those leaders in your, in your life that were Christians, have failed you. And that's the case with a lot of us. We just haven't been discipled correctly about simple things. Reading the Bible, having a, you know, a devotional time with the Lord, memorizing scripture, um, witnessing, sharing our faith, and giving. It's a, it's a part of the foundation of your Christian life. So, admittedly, Paul here in this text is not trying to give us the biblical rationale for giving. We have to go to other texts to get that. I gave you one of them, 2 Corinthians verses eight, uh, chapter 8 and 9. Go read that if you want to get the biblical rationale for why we give. But here's the, here's the bottom line. I think he's telling us to do this. So, Paul is giving us the rationale in other places, but he's saying, come on, Christians, we need to do this. We need to sit down and set aside a portion of our income weekly, monthly, and some regular habitual interval so that you are um, joining in the rest of the body of Christ as we advance God's kingdom with our resources. You are the resource. Here's the cool thing about our church. Many of you, some of you give weekly, 
Um, a lot of you give monthly. Most of you just give when you get paid. It's the, it's the easier thing. We are fortunate in our church, many of you give uh, in an automated fashion. You go online and it's habitual. So you're, you're, you're actually doing, that's the deliberate part of this. You are already deliberating your, your giving. What I would encourage you to do for discipleship is your kids are never going to see you give. The old school way, you know, we brought our offering. I mean, like, literally brought it. It was a time in the service. You stood up. You left your aisle. You took that offering. You put it in an offering plate in the front of the room. People looked at you crazy if you didn't get up and take your offering, right? Um, today, if you give automated, your kids never see you give. And so you got to talk to them about it. you got to show them what you do so that you'll pass that on. It'll be something that they uh, know that they should do as a part of the church. All right, y'all want me to stop talking about giving? I'm going to start. Uh, if, last comment. If, <laughs> if you're sitting here and you've never given, not to our church, to any church, here's the exhortation. Start small, but you've got to start somewhere. Right? Give a dollar. See how your heart feels. Regardless of how your heart feels, the Lord wants you to give. Why is that? Because your heart, your, your heart is tied to that treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. And here's what the Lord is trying to do in your life. He's trying to, he's trying to capture your heart so that your treasure is him and your heart will, will follow him and, and, you, and you won't be following whatever these other pursuits are. And so your money is just a resource that he gives you to bless his kingdom. That's what God wants you to do. So start, start small. Share a little bit. The next week, share a little bit more. And if it feels clunky, don't worry about it. It's going to get better as the Lord continues to work on your heart. So Paul exhorts us about giving. Why give? The church is the entity that God uses to advance his kingdom. If the church is to do that, it needs resources. You Transit Church are the resource, your body and the resources that God allows you to amass for yourself and your family. There's gospel work to be funded. There's mercy to be extended. Resources are required. And without it, the church can't do the very thing the church is called to do. So here, Paul turns the corner. And he gives us like an on the other hand. He's, he's going to show us that the work of God actually belongs to God. There's actually no leverage that we can apply that's going to make the church grow or see sinners saved or cause souls to, to move one inch away from hell or one inch toward heaven. That salvation is of the Lord. And that's a good balance. And so uh, here's the second thing Paul says. Mission and the plan of God. At least that's the thing he's alerting us to. Look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want, uh, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. All right, so in the grand scheme of things, Paul is, he's narrowing, I mean, he's getting to the close of his letter. He's only got a few more things he wants to say. And um, honestly, there's two ways to take this. The, the, the first way, and, and both of them are right. And, you know, he's got some things that, that they haven't asked him about, things that they are on his mind that he wants to talk to them about and sort of give them some logistical, administrative 
guidance in regards to him coming and all that. And that's sort of like he's taken off that list. In verse 5, he reiterates to them what he's already said a couple times before, uh, most notably in chapter 4, that he plans to come to them very soon. Verse 6, he repeats that thought, adding that perhaps he might spend a whole winter with them in expectation that they might help him on the next leg of his journey. The, the, the phrase that he uses is that they might be partners with him in the gospel, a phrase that we use when you come to our membership class, that we want you to be partners with us in the gospel as we do all the things that God has for us as a church. In verse 8, we learn that Paul is in Ephesus as he writes, and he stays in Ephesus longer than any other, any other church plant that he started. Uh, and, and here's why. Look at what he says in verse 9 again. He says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul is saying, he says, there's a lot of success going on here in Ephesus. And, and I think the Lord has, he wants me to stay here to tend to that, that gospel success. And then he says, on the other hand, man, this is hard. This is hard work. Like there's opposition left and right. Paul's describing a situation that he had in those two and a half years in Ephesus. And if you want to know about that, it's in Acts chapter 19. It's a beautiful chapter. In fact, you should turn. I'm going to talk about a couple things from that. You know, one of the reasons Paul stays in Ephesus so long was that, is, is that God was opening a, uh, this beautiful door to the gospel, to the gospel work of people coming to faith. So Paul's pattern would, would be he'd go to a city, he'd go to a synagogue, he would preach the gospel to the Jews and, and in hopes of um, converting some of his own racial heritage, Right. In most cases, those people would kick him out of the synagogue and call him a heretic, Re, uh, just rejecting Jesus. And then what would Paul do? He would turn to the Gentiles, and he'd do the very same thing. And so when he does that in Ephesus, here's what we learn in Acts 19. Uh, Paul is, is he's just going out into public squares, and he's preaching the gospel. And the text says, the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's like going to the National Mall with, 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 with no permit, not even a stage or a megaphone, and just street preaching, and then like thousands of people start surrounding you and, and, and coming to faith. That's the kind of thing that's going on in Ephesus under Paul's leadership. And he's, I mean, the, the gospel writer, he's not embellishing this. This is how wide open the door for effective work of the gospel that's going on under Paul's hand there. The gospel writer Luke tells us that the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. And Paul will talk in his letters about just the sacrificial and costly ministry that he pursued in Ephesus. And yet, even as Paul faced great opportunities in Ephesus, lots of people coming to faith, he's also saying he encountered lots of opposition. We see that in Acts 19 as well. There's a couple of incidents that, were, that, are, that are worth repeating. Um, Paul deals with the occult. You guys remember the, the, the seven sons of Sceva? Crazy story, all right? They're these uh, Jewish exorcists. They go around. They were, the, they were sons of a Jewish high priest by the name of Sceva, and they went around just casting demons out of people. They saw, they saw Paul ministering to people, casting out evil spirits, and the evil spirits leaving. And they said, well, I want to do that too. And so they tried out. And say they, they start trying to cast out demons out of people in the name of the God who Paul serves, right? And so the demons spoke back. It's like, I know Paul. 
And, and, and I know Jesus, but who are you? And these demons, like I'm not making this up. This is in Acts chapter 19. The demons beat these seven sons up and like beat them up so bad. Like they, they like stripped their clothes off naked. Like it was ridiculous. Now some of the opposition that Paul is experiencing in Ephesus on another occasion, he was arrested because his preaching has been so effective that people are leaving um, they're leaving their idols. One of the major idols in Ephesus was the, the Greek goddess Artemis. There was a temple uh, erected to her. People are selling idols and images and, and stuff like that. It's, it's akin to um, visitors going to the National Mall and visiting all the monuments and buying trinkets and maps and, and things of that nature. All that was happening in Ephesus. Paul comes in, preaches the gospel. People are coming to faith in Jesus, and they're leaving all that idol stuff alone. And guess what it did? It thwarted the whole business aspect of this idol, of this idol culture in Ephesus, so much that uh, some of the workers behind this stuff go and get Paul arrested and try to get him detained. And on top of that, Paul says he's battling all the, you know, all the Jewish hierarchy, those people who were the religious establishment who were calling him a heretic and saying that he's like a disgrace to his own people. And so earlier, Paul says, you know, I'm fighting beasts in Ephesus. I think this is akin to the opposition that he faced. All right, we can go on and on with Paul, about Paul in Ephesus. Some, some great stories there. But I think for our purposes, the, the question to ask is, I mean, what message are we supposed to be gleaning from all, from all of Paul's exploits as he's sort of suggesting this at, at the end of his letter in Corinthians? And this, here's how I boil it, boil it down to. I, I think this is what's going on. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we're seeing at Paul's hand. That the, the cause and advancement of the Lord's work and the good news of Jesus belongs solely to Jesus, which means as a church, transit church, we, we, we can't manufacture success in the, in the mission of God and his gospel in, in, in any way we try to unpack it. You know, a lot of times a pastor like me will stand up and say, hey, well, we need a building and we need some bodies. And if you give some money, we're going to be able to do great things for the Lord. And a lot of times for many churches, that's a, that's a measure of success. Here's what we're learning from Paul, that, that buildings, bodies, and bucks, doesn't, that's not God's economy. That's not how God measures success, even if there is a little bit of success from having those things. I, I like the words that Paul sneaks in in verse 7. He says, if the Lord permits. Paul's a sovereignty of God guy. Like he, he sees the Lord orchestrating even the, the he, he sees the Lord orchestrating the good days and the bad days. When the sun comes up or whether the sun's going down, Paul's saying, Lord, you're in charge of this, and, and, and I'm gonna follow you and however it lays out. And I think he's acknowledging that. You know, our success as a church, really, the success of any church is ever and only if a great door of effective work is open. God is the one that saves transit church. God must add daily to the church those who are being saved, which means God is the one that also opens doors. I'm not an open and closed door person. If you, if you come to me for counseling and you talk about open and closed doors, I'm going to tell you, all right, you can't lead your life by open and closed doors. Read the word. Follow the word. Paul is slapping Jeff up the side of the head right here and says, Jeff, God's open, God opens and closes doors. He does. But if you come to me for counseling, I'm going to tell you, all right, don't lead your life open, like waiting for God to open and close the door. 
And so we need to cry to the Lord to work mightily and to open a door for his word and for his work in D.C. Metro. Would you join me in that transit church? Would you join Nick and I and the elders and our leaders in praying for that constantly, that the Lord would open a door for his word and his work amongst us? In this huge building with all these organizations, we're asking ourselves almost every day, Lord, why did you bring us here? What, what would you have us do here? We want to open wide this door, not just on Sunday, but every day that Nick and I are in the office and find ways. I wouldn't mind having like 2,000 people come here and seek the Lord during the day or seek uh, help from a pastor because we have the time to do that. It's not beneath us to do that. So would you pray with us in that regard? that the Lord would mightily open a door for his word and for his work amongst the places and neighbors along Edsel Road and this landmark area, and then, of course, around the world. So Paul says, money in the church, mission and the plan of God, those two things are uniquely connected. We can't rest secure if we have more money than we need, which, of course, as a church, we don't. We have enough, but we definitely don't have more than we need. But here's what Paul is saying here. It's not money that leverages success. It's the sovereign will and the purpose of the living God. We also shouldn't panic as a church if we have less than we want. And I will be honest with you, this year we got a little bit less than we want. But that's okay. Why is that okay? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work, and we're in his hands, stranded church. Let's, let's rest comfortably in that, in that position. Here's the last thing that Paul will exhort us on, and I'll be done. Ministry and the servants of God. I'm going to be careful here because Nick is going to come and sort of uh, close this letter out with this same kind of a theme. But here's what Paul says in verse 10 and 11. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So Paul has come full circle. Remember how he started? Wait, wait, five months ago. Chapters 1 and 2, remember the opening chapters are largely of Paul um, trying to help this Corinthian church get beyond their arrogant, prideful, boastive, divisive cliques. They're all in schisms. Uh, remember they were saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul. Some of them were saying, I follow Christ. They were trying to claim the glory of whoever their particular celebrity pastor was. That's how they were looking at those who served amongst them. Corinthian, um, Corinth is a, is a very interesting city, unlike, not unlike D.C. Metro. Credentials and status were everything. Right? Doesn't that sound like D.C.? Corinth was the type of place that the school you, the, the school that you attended mattered. The, the job that you had mattered. The degree that you had mattered. There was a sizing up for people such that people would come up to you and say, well, well how much do you make? Or, or what part of town do you live in? It's not beneath us in D.C. to ask those kind of things, whether we know a person or not, right? This church that started off with Paul as their pastor and as their mentor, and it's fair to say that uh, the Apostle Paul had the equivalent of, of two PhDs, plus he had the success of being an entrepreneur and starting all these churches, not to mention all the daughter churches that spun up off of the churches that, he, that we know about in the, in the New Testament. So Paul in our, in our text here is saying, I, 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 you know, I've left, but I'm going to send Timothy to you. 
And here's the deal with Timothy. Timothy's a cool guy, a good guy. But Paul's concern was Timothy wasn't accomplished. He wasn't flashy. Oh, by the way, he was much younger than Paul. Uh, this Corinthian church, uh, this is this ancient society. They don't respect young people. They would have respected elders, right? And so Timothy had none of the credentials nor the, uh, the command of Scripture or even the charisma that Paul had. And so Paul had appointed him as a pastor. And in this right, he was concerned that they weren't going to receive Timothy as they should. So what Paul is doing here is he's offering a different model of what it means to be a servant of God. He commends those that serve amongst them, not because they're impressive or dramatic or charismatic or they have personal, uh, powerful personalities, not because of the force of their rhetoric or even their imposing demeanor. Paul says, you need someone to care for you and help you uh, who, who's like Timothy. Men and women who are like Timothy. And here's what he says in verse 10. He says, help him. Don't look down on him. And then he says this. He says, don't despise him. Despise is a nasty word. It, it captures the, the, like an intense hatred, kind of like uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and particularly in this culture, it's the way that some might have thought that other people, either because of their uh, lesser credentials or some other statistic that they didn't like about you, were less than. So Paul's concern is Timothy's going to come, and although he's a reputable servant in the, in the Lord, they're going to think that he's less than. And so Paul says, help him, because verse 10, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. That's a cool phrase. He's doing the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is always redemptive, Transit Church. It doesn't matter who's doing it. If we're doing it in the name of the Lord, it's going to right wrongs. It's going to lead us to our Savior. The work, the work of the Lord is many things. It's the task of loving and sowing and caring and giving of ourselves to others. It's obeying the call to serve back in kids' ministry or in a sound booth. But it's also a call to go to a far-off land as a missionary for the rest of your life. It's, it's, it's the words we sang in one of the songs this morning. It's the freeing, uh, it's the freeing of, of bringing men and women out of bondage to evil habits and bad attitudes and wrongful practices and setting them free. It's the beautifying work of bringing beauty out of ashes. It's, it's giving oil for joy for mourning. And Paul is commending Timothy as an effective instrument in that. Paul is saying, when you see somebody like this with that ability, Receive him, welcome her, reach out to them, encourage them, regardless if they're young or old or inexperienced. If they're doing the work of the Lord, then the work that they're doing is going to be redemptive and you need it. Can I ask you, Transit Church, especially on a day when we uh, acknowledge and recognize those in our church that serve amongst us, can I ask you, would you, can I commend to you those who are doing the work of the Lord, like right in our church? Would you show honor to those who serve in our church day in and day out? Would you, would you take the time to like demonstrably appreciate those who get here before you do, who clean up after you, who leave after you do, as they're serving you, but more importantly, as they're serving the Lord? On top of all this, would you pray for our leaders? 
our elders and our community group leaders who shepherd you, most of the time behind the scenes, praying for you, that God might favor you and that he might um, become your all in all. Would you pray for our department leaders, those who get here before you do and leave after you've already left? Who are the real, I mean, the real ones who are operating this church and who do it not out of a, um, a, a have to, they do it out of a get to, out of a love that they have, a, a joy of serving the Lord. Would you pray for all of those people? Here's a selfish prayer. Would you pray for your pastors? Would you? I mean, seriously, like, like we need it every day that, that we would have fervor for the Lord, that it wouldn't be our vision that's driving this church. It would be the Lord's vision, that we would have his favor so that you would gain his favor, that we would see what he sees when he sees you, and that we would be able to love you with the compassion and care and empathy that God loves you with that he wouldn't cause us to be weary in well-doing, that he would sustain us in ways that we can't even sustain ourselves. So let me conclude with this. Anytime we talk about money, mission, and ministry, it's so easy to get discouraged, especially when considering what Paul is asking the church to be and to do. A lot of times our individual lives and even the church, church communities that we're part of, to include this church, we don't measure up, do we? Like we're looking at what Paul is saying. You know what, Lord, I don't do that. I don't do that. I do a little bit of that, but man, I'm just failing all around. And I think that's another reason why it is really good that Paul says these kind of mundane things after taking us to the mountaintop of the resurrection. Here's what we learn from the resurrection. In all the ways that we fail, Jesus gains the victory on our behalf. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 15. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. As that phrase again, knowing that the work that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this church, for those who serve, and just for the opportunity to serve and and, and be a shepherd amongst them. God, we honor you today as the chief shepherd. We want to hear from you. And even as I pray, Lord God, I, 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 I pray this. We want to be a generous church. And to be a generous church means we need generous people. And uh, Lord, we can't manufacture that. To, to be generous people that lend to a generous church, we need you to change our hearts. And, uh, and so I get, my first prayer would be that, Lord, that you would do the heart transformation that makes us uh, less like our sinful selves and more like Jesus who gave all. I mean, like he left nothing back. He gave it all to his Father. God, would you make us people like that that are willing to give uh, our all for him? I pray for heart transformations, that the things that we treasure will be what you treasure, and that our hearts will reflect your heart. God, we got a lot of things to confess based upon this sermon, particularly about giving. But more importantly, we, we confess that we have not valued those who serve amongst us as you would value leaders. We sometimes see leaders as the world sees them. 
God, help us to see leaders that serve amongst us with joy like you see them and help us to honor them. And in regards to, to mission, Lord, sometimes we, we just want three steps to success. But Lord, uh, help us to see, uh, to, to bend on your, your sovereignty and your hand as a measure of success. Lastly, Lord, we pray for uh, repentance and faith. That's the thing that changes us, that we would see our sin and that you would, in your kindness, would bring us to repentance and to faith. And so in all the ways that we continue to fail, we pray that you lead us back to Jesus in whom alone we find the remedy for all of our sins. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen.